So I want to minister for a few minutes this morning through a message I'm calling Because I Am Generous. From the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane, from the Garden of Paradise to the Garden of Passion. In the midst of failure and betrayal, in the midst of death and disappointment, the one thing that we discover is we discover a generous God with a plan of redemption. Redemption means to buy us out of something. And of course, we know that we were bought out of slavery. That slavery was called sin. We were bought out of slavery by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed. And God had a plan of redemption in place before he laid the foundation of the world. It was not a surprise to him that Adam blew it in the garden. God already knew. God knows all things. The God that walked with the first Adam in the Garden of Eden is the same God that walked with the last Adam through the Garden of Gethsemane. In the garden, Adam betrayed God and he fell into the hands of Satan. In the garden, Jesus was betrayed by one of his disciples. And the Bible declares that he fell into the hands of sinners. We don't like to talk about betrayal, but betrayal is a part of life. And if you've lived long enough, you'll know that you have been betrayed. We are betrayed at times by family and friends. We are betrayed by our own transitory beauty. You don't believe me? Just live long enough. Even our bodies betray us. At times, people endure their own Gethsemane, if you will, of affliction because they suffer great pain and great loss. But here's the truth I want to fall into your heart this morning. We must never allow our momentary affliction. We must never allow our momentary betrayal, our momentary disappointment. We must never allow these issues of life to become the measuring stick of whether or not God is generous. Those are just issues of life. They come and they go. God is always generous. But if we look at our issues of life, instead of looking at Him, it doesn't take long for us at times to go, I don't know. Is God really generous toward us? He is generous toward us, friends. In 1996, my brother Tim, who's one year younger than me, 
was in an awful automobile accident. In that car accident, my brother Tim's wife was killed and his little girl. Only my brother and his one-and-a-half-year-old boy lived. Tim may have lived through that accident, but Tim has been living in the Garden of Gethsemane since that day. He suffers tremendous emotional anguish and tremendous pain in his body because he was so broken up in that accident. And I have been attempting to minister to him even recently. If we don't have a foundation in place, when issues of life come, betrayal, disappointment, whatever it may be, death, destruction, then we're going to blame God. If nothing else, we're going to say, God, you could have prevented this, but you didn't. And friends, I want to tell you something. I'd be a liar if I stood before you trying to say I can explain every situation away. I don't fully understand all these situations myself. I do understand that God has made a grace available for every issue of life we have to walk through. There is a grace to come through those things. No, in all these things, we stand established in a greater reality. And one of those greater realities is that the generosity of God is always, always at work on our behalf. He's always at work on our behalf. The Apostle Paul was writing one day and he wrote the book of Titus and he said these words. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. He says, But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. I love that. Not because of righteous things we had done, look at those words, but because of His mercy. He says, when the kindness, that is another way of saying grace, that is another way of saying generosity, when the generosity and the grace of God and the love of God appeared through Jesus Christ, the Bible says He saved us but I always want us to remember it wasn't because of anything we had done. Do you see those words? Am I in the word? It says, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. So right away when I read that portion of the Scripture, I discover that this is His work in my life. This is His grace operating in me. This is his love. This is his mercy. This was his idea to save me, to rescue me. The Bible says he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us, look at that next word, generously. I love that word. He poured out what? The Holy Spirit. Generously, he poured out his love generously. He poured out his kindness generously. Poured out his grace generously. Who? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that having been justified, that means you have been declared right. You've been declared righteous. Having been justified by everything you do in life. 
<laughs> Pastor Steve shaking his head. No, no, it's not by everything we do in life. We are justified by his grace. Justified means he has declared you innocent. He's declared you pure. He's declared you clean. You have been justified by his grace that we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. There is not one moment, not one beat of the clock that for even a second I believe that I don't have eternal life. I know I have eternal life. How do I know? Because he calls it eternal life. Eternal means eternal. I can't have eternal life one moment and not the next. That just does not make sense. We have eternal life. So in those four scriptures that I just read, we discover the kindness and the love of God. We discover the salvation and the mercy of God. We discover the grace and the life of God working in us and through us. But moreover, we discover His matchless heart. Matchless heart poured out on us. How did it say? Generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. There are going to be days in a believer's life when none of those realities feel true. Occasions when lying emotions throw pity parties and then mail you sympathy cards. It happens. I've had to catch myself over the years when I have been in situations where I thought, man, I could just throw myself a little pity party here and check with the Holy Spirit and say, what do you think about this, Holy Spirit? And you know what? For the life of me, the Holy Spirit says, you know what? Wherever you go, I go. I mean, I, I really don't care for pity parties, but if you want to go there, we'll go there. But you're just going to wear yourself out. I've got a better plan for you. We are going to experience days when our own pain, whether it be emotional or physical, speaks louder than the generosities of God. Now pause and think about that for a second. Times when whatever we're dealing with in life, whether it be emotional or physical, it has a louder voice, it seems, than the generosities of God or the promises of God. So what do we do when that happens? The question isn't so much what do we do when that happens because I think what happens if we're not prepared, we catch ourselves off guard and we don't know what to do in situations like that. There's times when we need to really prepare our hearts for the storms of life when they come. How do we do that? How do you prepare your heart for the storms of life? I, I really, I wish we would just go through life and there'd be no storms. It'd be 72 degrees with about 40% humidity, sunshine, a little breeze. I wish every day was like that. But I don't know what world you live in because that's not a reality. So we have to deal with these things. How do we do it? We prepare by rehearsing and reminiscing in our hearts and our minds about the generosities of our Father, whether it be something that He has done in your life or somebody else's life 
or just somebody, a character from the Bible. We put ourselves in remembrance of what the character of our Father looks like. He's faithful. He's always on time. He's merciful. He's loving. He's kind. He's gracious. He's all of these things. And because that is my default, this is what I go to when I have to walk through a storm of my own, is I know my Father will be with me. I have seen these attributes of His too many times. You can't convince me otherwise. On Friday at work, I got an email from a lady who I only talk to on the phone maybe six or seven times a year. She's one of my corporate accounts. And this is what her email said. She said, good morning, exclamation point. Today is the last day of our accounting period, so the crazy calls have begun. I just needed to reach out to a fellow nice person before rudeness engulfs me. What was that woman saying? I had to read that email and go, what, what are you saying? She was saying, I am putting myself in remembrance of a generous man. Generosity that has shown up in her life in the form of kindness and grace and acceptance and love compliment, enthusiasm. I looked at that email and, and here's my email response back to her. I said, wow, exclamation point. I said, I never thought of myself as a rudeness retardant, but I like it. It's true. We can be rudeness retardant. We can be crushed dream retardant. Why? By speaking grace to a situation like that. One of the first scriptures I ever put to memory was Ephesians 4.29. I don't have it on the PowerPoint this morning. But it says, Let no unwholesome communication proceed out of thy mouth, but only that which is for the use of edifying, that it might minister grace to the hearer. What is he saying? Everything that comes out of our mouth should fill an atmosphere of grace. It should fill somebody's heart full of grace. You never know what people are dealing with. You ask, how do I prepare myself for emotional and painful storms? How do I prepare myself for betrayal and disappointment? By feeding on the truths that our Father is kind, loving, and merciful even in the midst of cat five storms. He's just as merciful then. Our Father is gracious and full of life. Our Father saves us. Our Father rescues us. Our Father is a tower, the Bible says, that we can run into. Our Father is a protector. He is a provider. Why? Why in the world would he do all that for us? Well, let's let him answer that question. Daddy, why in the world would you do all that for us? His response, because I am generous. Remember the scripture said, we didn't do anything to earn this. This was a gift to us there in Titus. 
He says, because I'm generous. And he says, son, he says, daughter, you need to put yourselves in remembrance that I will be generous to you. He says, I will not treat you as your sins deserve. <laughs> she said, thank God. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 41 from the New Living Translation, we find these words. Jesus said, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for one mile, carry it two miles. Now let me tell you something. A commentary didn't teach me the essence of that scripture. I learned the heart of that scripture just by walking through life and listening to the Spirit. I never quite understood that scripture when I would read it. Wait a minute now. If I'm compelled to carry bags for one mile, I'm to carry them two miles, Jesus said. If we understand the system of the day, the Romans could compel you to carry their military gear, their bags. Their, it could have all kinds of military supplies. And those bags were very heavy. And they didn't want to have to work any harder than they had to. And because you had people walking up and down the streets and down the roads, they would just point to somebody and say, you, come here. And there was no debating it. You had to come to that Roman soldier or face losing your own head. And he would say, I'm going that direction. I am compelling you to carry my bags one mile. And so that was very, very commonplace. And Jesus knew about that. And he said, that's going to happen. There are going to be people in life that come along and they're going to put a demand on you. And when they put a demand on you, in this case, to carry the bags for one mile, he said, I tell you, don't carry it one, but carry it twain. Carry it two miles. So Jesus puts a new spin on this command by telling him to carry it two miles. Now, the question is, why would Jesus say something so bizarre? Because he knew something they hadn't yet learned. That's why. So it was a teachable moment for them. He was teaching them, first of all, a lesson in generosity. Being generous. Jesus was saying to them, carry their bags further than the law demands. The law of the land said one mile. Jesus said, go beyond the law. Jesus said, listen, here's what I want you to really learn. I want you to go beyond your own feelings. That is so important. Because feelings rule us so much. Jesus said, I want you to get into the habit of not making decisions based upon how you feel about stuff. You don't even feel like carrying it the first mile. But he said, I want you to go beyond the law. I want to inject grace into this scenario, this picture. Go beyond your feelings. Did you know that our feelings will put up stop signs where roads haven't even been plowed? I'm serious. I felt the Holy Spirit say that to me yesterday. It's so easy just to say, no, no, no. Feelings will put up stop signs where you don't even have a road yet. I'm not saying we say yes to everything. You got to check with the Spirit. You got to check with His Word. 
Listen for that small, still voice. So why would Jesus ask us to go beyond? Because that's what he's done. Because I am generous to you, I want you to be generous to others. Show them grace. Operating by feelings is generally a one-way street. Now let me explain that. For years, in fact, I've lost count now. I don't know, eight, nine, ten years. <laughs> Every time I mow my grass, I mow my neighbor's grass. <laughs> I don't just walk one mile, I walk two. The man and his wife that used to live next door to me were friends. And I got in the habit of just being friendly to my neighbor. But about a year ago, he moved to California. And a new person moved in. And see, brother, I'm already in the habit of mowing one yard, mowing two, right? And the first time I took a pass between our two yards, I thought, you know what? They don't know that I used to mow. This was going on in my head. They don't know that I used to mow my friend's yard. They won't think anything less of me. And something inside of me was so programmed and so trained, I just said, no. I'm going to keep mowing the yard. And you know what? It kind of made them feel uncomfortable. I know it did at first because they probably thought, well, what's that guy doing mowing my grass? Didn't I get a yard with this home? Does he think both these yards are his? Because when I'd start mowing the grass, the door would be open. And before I was done, the door would be shut. I know it wasn't just the lawnmower making the noise. They probably just didn't want me to look in and see him. I don't think they knew what to do with that. I didn't knock on the door after I was done say, uh, <laughs> give me my money no what was I doing I was just being generous to them Thank you. now listen I always hate to use examples of my own because I never want to draw any attention to me but I know my life better than I know yours I know the activity of my life better than I know yours and I know these are realities in my life but now imagine this Remember I said that operating by feelings alone can be a one-way street pertaining to the blessing. Imagine I mowed both of those yards, but I despise mowing my neighbor's yard. I hated it every time I did it. Guess what? Guess who would end up blessed? My neighbor! The blessing wouldn't be working in me. But because I do just as good a job for them as I do for me, I just enjoy their yard as much as I do mine. I'm telling you, this works. Jesus was giving us, a yes, a principle under the Old Covenant. I get it. We're talking about Matthew chapter 5. We're in the Old Covenant. But not every principle from the Old Covenant has been made obsolete. Only the way we come to Christ, only the way we have a relationship with God, that covenant has been made obsolete. We have a covenant by grace today, not by law. So we get to choose to be good to people. We get to choose to be generous to people. If I only carry the Roman soldier's bag one mile, then he's the one that gets blessed. I don't get blessed. If I carry his bags two miles, then he gets blessed and I get blessed. You know why? Because I don't hate that man anymore. Because I made a decision in my heart. I'm going to be good to you. I'm going to inject grace into this situation and you're going to see a power that is going to really freak you out. 
I'm telling you, the world is looking for generous people, generous people of God. But you've got to listen to the Holy Spirit because that generosity shows up in different ways. Amen. When the sun's upper lip breaches the horizon, we call that a sunrise. It is one of the most impressive moments of the day. A sunrise is beautiful, rivaled only by a sunset. It is beautiful. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know what? Our sun does not frown when the world falls into chaos. Our sun does not regard the issues of life, and it is not hindered by good or evil. The sun does what it was designed to do, rise and shine. And that's what we are to do, rise and shine forth the light of God, the glory of God, the manifest presence of God. We are to rise above darkness, rise above the issues of life, rise with a hope, a healing in our wings for people, rise with the sun of righteousness in our mouth. This is what Jesus was getting at as we jump up four scriptures, Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. He says, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now let me ask you a question. Why in the world would God allow a picturesque sunrise to ascend and a refreshing rain to fall on evil and unrighteousness? Why would God do that? Jesus said he causes, meaning my father is the one that causes the son. It's not just a son, it's his son. And what has his son been programmed to do? Rise and shine. He said, my daddy causes the son, his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why would he send a refreshing rain on the unrighteous? Why would he allow a sunrise to rise on evil? They are deserving of neither. Well, let's let God answer that question. What do you suppose he's going to say? He's going to say, because I am generous. That's the reason he does it. Why should I bake a pie for an undeserving neighbor? Because I am generous. Why should I go visit a co-worker in the hospital, who's mean-spirited, because I am generous. Why should I pray for those who despitefully use me and persecute me? Because I am generous. And why should I wash the feet of one that betrays me? Jesus did that. Jesus washed Judas's feet too. He washed Peter's feet, and Peter denied him. Why did Jesus do that? Because Jesus is generous. Why do we do these things? Because I am generous. That Christ that did all those wonderful things lives on the inside of me. He is generous and I am generous. Now, this is what I felt the Holy Spirit say to me. Generous people are intentional in their actions and their words. You don't become generous accidentally. Generous people 
are shaped by the consistent drip of something greater than themselves. They're shaped by the consistent drip of grace into their hearts and by reminding themselves of how generous their Papa God has been to them. I go down timelines and I think about what my daddy's done for me. And it just blesses my heart. We should be good to people that are not exactly like us. My wife likes yogurt. My wife likes cottage cheese. She likes sour cream. She likes buttermilk infested dressing. And I can't stand any of that stuff. I loathe that stuff. If that stuff fell off the earth, it would hurt my feelings not one little bit. I'm sorry if I stirred you up for lunch already, but she likes that stuff. I cannot stand it. And her favorite drink is vinegar water. This is what she drinks all day long. I'm sorry, honey, I'm picking on you. You did me in last week, so I had to get you this week. Now I'm just messing with you. She takes two capsules of apple cider vinegar, puts it in a glass, puts some ice cubes in there and some water, and drinks that stuff. That's her drink. She'll have it right in that cup over there right now. I keep telling honey, that's window cleaner. That ain't, <laughs> that ain't a drink. You spray that stuff on windows. You don't want any streaks? Vinegar water right there. Boom, done. Over with. That's what she likes to drink. And I know it's healthy for her. She likes that stuff. She does. And I have accidentally drank from her drink on three or four occasions. All occasions were either inside the church building or in the car where I got our drinks mixed up. I mean, you just can't, you can't spit it out in church. You can't spit it out in your car. I mean, if it had been in the house or somewhere else, blah! I mean, it is the rottenest stuff you ever drank in your life. She likes it. What is my point? Just because Valerie and I have different tastes doesn't mean my generosity to her is exempt. You see, I may not be called to those foods, but I am called to my wife. I am called to Valerie. Absolutely. I'm called to be generous to my wife regardless of her own personal taste. Now, why is that so important? I believe a selah fits right there. Selah means to pause and think about what was just said. We see it in the Psalms. Pause and think about that. If we are looking for people that we are 100% compatible with, you let me know when you find them, okay? Because they don't exist. But we learn to be generous. We learn to love people exactly where they are. We're all different. We just are. Each of us have experienced occasions when generous or extravagant gifts were given to them. Can I get an amen? Somebody's given you a gift. It was extravagant. It was a generous gift. Times when in the quietness of our own hearts, we actually question the motivation of the giver. We question the intentions of the giver. Oh, we didn't say anything, but our muted tongues ask questions like, why would he or she give me such a gift? Why would they do that? What is it they are trying to get me to do? 
Or simply, what's the catch? Well, friends, let me tell you, you are the catch. God caught you in the net of His grace. We are the catch. God caught us, and He has no hidden motives. He doesn't have one single thing He's hidden from us. There are no hidden motives. Look at this next scripture up here, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that a beautiful scripture? I never get tired of hearing this scripture. In that scripture, His motivation is revealed. God so loved the world. That's His motivation. But not only is His motivation revealed, but the manifestation of the person is revealed, His only begotten Son. He told us exactly how He did it. But not only is the motivation and the manifestation revealed, the magnification is revealed. Look what He gave us. He gave us eternal life. He gave us everlasting life. There is nothing hidden. It's all there, plain sight from God. I so love the world that I gave you my only begotten Son. He didn't give us an angel. He gave us His Son. That whosoever believeth, what? Just put your trust in Him. That's it. He said, I'm going to give you everlasting life. God is not hiding things from us. He has revealed to us His Word, His Son, His Spirit. He's given us the revelation of the cross and grace and forgiveness of sins and faith. He's given all these gifts to us as a groom gives these to His bride. Friends, let me tell you something. He may have never mowed our yard, but He mowed our sins. He did. And you know what He did when He after He mowed our sins? He sprinkled a retardant on those things called Jesus' blood. And those sins will never ever grow again in our hearts. They'll never grow again in our fields. They'll never grow. Well, how do I know that? Because John the Baptist had a revelation. He said, let me be the first one who says this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes them away. Well, if He takes something away, friends, that means it's not coming back. Jesus took away our sins. Beautiful. Learning to receive a generous gift is a difficult practice for most people. I uh, personally have come to know over the years that receiving an extravagant gift actually, for me, requires more grace than giving an extravagant gift. Or at least it used to. When my twins were born in 1994, December of 1994, one was born with major heart problems and underwent open-heart surgery when he was six days old. He spent a month in the hospital. His name was Taylor, Taylor Jacob. And our story broke on the front page of the newspaper where we lived. They did a big article on little Taylor and the community rallied. And a woman called us on the phone and said, I read your story. I want to give you some money to help with the expenses. Now, this was eight months before I had a relationship with Jesus. So full of pride, full of awkwardness or whatever it may be. She told us the amount. It was about 125000 And I kindly said, no, thank you. 
Why would I say something like that? I didn't know how to receive a gift of that magnitude. I didn't have anything inside of me that knew what to do with anything like that. And we really needed that. Desperately needed that. But God had not taught me how to be a receiver yet. And I think back now and I think, man, I, I just don't know how I could have done that, but I did. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Luke wrote these words about his friend, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. In other words, he was saying, we must give to the weak. We must be generous to the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I know we've all quoted that before. Yes, it was said by the Lord. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's not only more blessed to give than to receive, but it's also easier for most people to give than to receive. Let's read that verse again. It says, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. For me, receiving a generous gift was one of the most difficult mountains I ever learned to climb. You see, giving generous gifts was not my problem. It was the receiving of generous gifts that was my problem. In fact, gifts of any size made me feel awkward. I don't care if it was a little birthday gift, it made me feel awkward. But let me tell you something. Grace has taken that awkwardness away. I don't care what anybody steps up in front of me and gives me. It could be a, a pencil, an eraser, or it could be a million dollars. I'm going to be as, just as gracious in receiving that. I wasn't that way at one time. Grace took that awkwardness away. The truth be told, I never understood why receiving a gift made me feel so uncomfortable. And quite honestly, I never took time to figure it out. Who do you turn to to ask a question like that? But I think a lot of people are stuck there because you can see the awkwardness sometimes in the exchange when you're trying to give people stuff. If you don't see it with your eyes, you'll hear it with their words. You'll hear, oh, no, I don't, I'm, not, no I, I'm not deserving of that. You'll hear it in some way. It will manifest. Grace takes that awkwardness away because we already have come to realize the magnitude of the gift that Christ has given us. Anything you give us beyond that, friends, will never compare to the gift he gave us at the cross. Amazing gift. But there are actually a number of reasons why people are uncomfortable in those situations. But I believe the one that is out in front of them all, the one that I think leads the pack, is this. It is our defense mechanism against intimacy. You see, giving and receiving the exchange of gifts like that creates a connection. It creates a bond. And the kings of the Old Testament understood that very well. That's why they were always giving gifts to their neighbors, their kings, their neighboring countries. 
I mean, you can't be a king and give your son to the king 20 miles down the road from you and then decide to go have war with him. You just gave your son to that king for his daughter or that daughter was given to your son. So they would create these alliances by giving gifts. Many times it was their own children that they would give in marriage. In Luke chapter 19, we see a man that ran into the generosity of Jesus. His name is Zacchaeus. Let's read his story. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Now watch this. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's going through Jericho. He has another 15 miles or so. He may not even get it all accomplished in one day, and he's got his disciples, his 12 disciples with him, and they have surrounded him like the Secret Service surrounds the president, pushing people away that are thronging. The multitudes were thronging. Why? Because Jesus' reputation showed up in Jericho before Jesus did. And as they were coming toward Jericho, there was a host of people that was there to meet Jesus. Some that were just curiosity seekers like Zacchaeus and others that had real issues in their body, but they wanted to see this Jesus. And the Bible says there was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. I love what his name means. His name means clean, pure, innocent. And that man, that little bitty guy, was hated by everybody in that town. They hated him. Why? Because he was the chief tax collector. And the Bible says he was very wealthy. Why does it make note to tell us that? What's the point of that? Because they're telling you Zacchaeus was a thief. Their job was to collect taxes for the Romans, and they would give the Romans a taxes, but they would overcharge you and keep the difference. And they could establish a lot of wealth. And so the people of the town hated that tax collector. Not that we like tax collectors ourselves, really. Or the IRS, you know what I mean? I don't think anybody has a fond relationship with anybody from the IRS. But they despised them. They were dirt under their fingernails. So there is no way they would have looked at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Oh, they'd have called him every other name in the book, but they wouldn't have called him by name because in those days, everybody knew what your name meant. See, in those days, names all had specific meanings. You ask people today, what does your name mean? A lot of people won't even know what their name means today. They just have no clue what their name means. And there is no way the townspeople are going to say, how you doing, Mr. Clean? <laughs> how you doing, Mr. Pure? How you doing, Mr. Innocent? There is no way they're going to call him that. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And the Bible says he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And, I, and as I was meditating on that yesterday, I couldn't help but think these words and these thoughts. 
my journey into the finished work of grace, which began nine or ten years ago, began because I wanted to see who Jesus was. There were times that I would sit in my quiet devotional time in the morning with tears. And I would remember praying, Daddy, I want to see who you are. Daddy, I know I've been saved all these years, but this preacher says you're like this. This one says you're like that. Daddy, I'm confused. I want to know who you are. Daddy, I'm willing to allow you to change my doctrine. I'm willing to let you change my constitution, everything about me. I want to know who Jesus is. And I'll tell you what, when I began to pray like that, I could sense that I was seeing the, the word different. I mean, in very short order. I could tell when I would go to the word. I'm like, wow, I've been over that word a thousand times. I never saw that before. I could begin to see the love of God, the unconditional love of God, the impeccable grace of God in the scriptures. So I'm identifying with Zacchaeus right now. He wanted to see who Jesus was. I got to the point, friends, I didn't just want to see who Jesus was. I wanted to see who he is and who he is to come. And as that grace began to drip in my heart, I'm telling you, it was like peeling a religious onion. <laughs> That's what it was like. He began to peel that religious onion of works performance based Christianity Oh yeah, and like an onion, true to an onion, it made me do some crying. It sure did. As daddy began to peel away all that performance-based Christianity and just say, son, why don't you just climb up on my lap? Let me tell you who you are to me. Let me put your true identity. Let me awaken you to who you really are. You are flawless in my eyes. You are beautiful to me. You are precious to me. And I like how it makes the point about the fact that he was short. And as I meditated on that last night, here's what I felt the Holy Spirit say to me. If you always rely on people that you perceive are taller than you in the faith, you will never see him for yourself. In other words, What you dig out of the Word, what you mine out of the Word, and it could be something so small, is going to mean more to you than 10,000 eloquent words from the best preacher on earth. There is no substitute for what He shows you. But if you're always, always just being spoon-fed by those that are taller than you in the faith, you'll never see Jesus for who He is. And so we see this type and shadow kind of unfolding in this story. So what is Zacchaeus going to do about this? Oh, he's got a plan. Here's what he does. The Bible says, So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up at him and said to him, Zacchaeus! Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, friends, let me tell you something. What did Zacchaeus do? 
He's resourceful. You got to give him credit for that. The man climbed up in a sycamore fig tree. I want to draw your attention back to the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned. You know what he did? He found sycamore fig leaves and he tied them together like an apron and he put them around he and his wife Eve to cover him. You know what he was doing? He was covering himself in self-righteousness. And when Jesus looked up in the tree, he said, oh, yeah. I'm familiar with this because I was in the garden when Adam did the same thing, trying to cover himself in self-righteousness. I see you, Zacchaeus, in all your self-righteousness. You're wearing it. It's all around you. But Jesus looked at him and he called him by, I believe, a name that he hadn't heard in years because he was despised. He said, hey, Mr. Clean. <laughs> hey, Mr. Pure. Hey, Mr. Innocent. And I love the boldness, the frankness of Jesus. He said, come down. He said, I must it's not just a good idea. He said, I must come to your house today, right now. And so Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Welcomed him where? Welcomed him into his home. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. They were talking about Jesus when they said that. They said, look at that man. The guy we stayed up all night waiting for because we knew was coming. Can you believe this? He got here and then he went to Zacchaeus' house. He went to that dirty rat's house. I love that. That's what our granddaughter Mila called her teacher one time. She got so mad at her teacher. She said, oh, you dirty rat. <laughs> That's as bad as it gets with Mila. She said, you dirty rat. But I can sense the people were doing that too. They're like, he went to that dirty rat's house. But Jesus was able to look beyond what they saw. Jesus could see a transformed man. Jesus could see what life would look like when he came and lived inside of him. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That is transformation. Friends, I don't know what you call that, but that is transformation. And it can happen in an instant. What God is showing us is that salvation, we are instantly transformed into his likeness and his glory. But all this other stuff that's stuck in our soul where it's challenging, it's difficult to be generous to somebody. You've got to work on that stuff. By what? By reminding yourself of the generosity of our God. By reminding yourself of His great love and His grace and His mercy. Jesus said to him, Today, Salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus show such generosity to Zacchaeus? Why would he do that? You see, Jesus found the worst one of the bunch or at least in the townspeople's eyes. 
And Jesus was saying, look, I'm going to show you what I can do with the worst that you give me. That means everybody's got a hope. Everybody's got an opportunity. If I can change that man, and you're going to see the change in his life, I can change anybody. Jesus was generous to Zacchaeus because he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I could sense in Jesus' heart he was saying, Zacchaeus, you've already climbed one tree, but I say to you, climb a second tree. Climb the tree that's in the center of the garden. That is the tree of life. Zacchaeus, I am that tree of life. Don't just climb one tree, Zacchaeus. Climb two. And I'll change your life forevermore. Zacchaeus, I came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus, I may not like what you have been eating, but I like you. I like you, Zacchaeus. I came to be generous to you without regard to the fact that you've been a tax collector and a cheat all your life. I came to be generous to you. Isn't that beautiful? Friends, the Bible tells us it's the goodness of God that causes man to repent. It's the grace of Christ and the generosity of the moment that all caught up with a man named Zacchaeus. Beautiful. It's a beautiful story. God gave us generous gifts through the redemption of His blood. He gave us the gift of the cancellation of sins. He gave us the gift of cascading grace. He gave us the gifts of wisdom and understanding. He unveiled His secret desires to us. God gave us the extravagant and generous gifts of righteousness and eternal life. And those gifts created a connection. The Bible calls it a joining together, a connection that cannot be severed. That's what those gifts did. Those gifts created a connection with us and the Father. They did. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. I want to read it for you in the Passion Translation. Look at these words. Since we are now joined to Christ, we have been given the treasures. I love that. That means we have been given the gifts. We've been given the treasures. All the treasures of heaven. We've been given the treasures of redemption by His blood, the total cancellation of our sins, all because of the cascading riches of His grace. This superabundant grace is already powerfully working in us, releasing within us all forms of wisdom and practical understanding. And through the revelation of the anointed one, that's Jesus, He unveiled His secret desires to us, the hidden mystery of His long-range plan which he was delighted to implement from the very beginning of time, from the very first garden. Now he's walked through the last garden and he wants to implement this plan, the plan of salvation, the plan of superabundant grace. If we don't exchange gifts with each other, then we keep each other at a distance. When I say gifts, I want you to think larger than something that's wrapped with a bow on it and a card attached to it. I'm talking about the gift of just being good to somebody. 
I'm talking about the gift of washing another man's feet. I'm talking about the gift of being kind. I'm talking about the gift of an unexpected phone call. Sometimes it may come in the form of money to help them meet a need. I'm talking about listening to Papa because he knows what the need is. But if we don't exchange gifts, if we don't allow that flow of gifts, then we'll keep each other at a distance. When we come and minister at Triumphant Grace Ministries, what are we doing? We're taking the gifts that God has given us and we're giving them to you. Now, we don't expect that this will be the only gift Papa gives you. He gives you all kinds of gifts. But we are giving you a gift so that you can take that same gift and go and be good to people. I can't tell you how many times people have given me gifts in life and then I've re-gifted them before I could even think about it. You ever done that? You know, at first it was a little tough to do. I'm like, wait a minute, now they just gave me a gift. And I listened to the Holy Spirit and he said, I want you to re-gift that to someone else. We got to be sensitive to these kind of things. He doesn't have a cookie cutter approach to life in general. He has millions, a myriad way of doing things and accomplishing ways to encourage the body of Christ. Too many relationships are marginalized because they lack kindness, they lack love, and they lack generosity. And what do we do with those relationships? We marginalize them. You know what it means to be marginalized? It means to be put on the sideline. I'm sure when a pro football team is playing and they're out there on that field, man, everybody's rooting for them. Those guys that have been marginalized, they're sitting on the bench. And with all of their hearts, oh, they want to win. But moreover, they want to play. They want to get in the game. So we don't want to marginalize people. We don't want to marginalize the gifts that Daddy has given us. Because if we do, we'll keep people at a distance. Now listen to what I'm about to say. This sounds almost philosophical, but this is just the way the Lord communicated it to me. To the extent that a man fears intimacy, it will disallow him from receiving a gift whether in the form of a present or even a compliment. To the extent that a man fears intimacy. And I believe that's why sometimes gifts are turned down is people are saying, they're not really saying, I don't want your gift. They're saying, I don't want you. And it may not even be that they have an issue with you, but it just may simply be, I don't need you in my life. I'm doing fine. In Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 16, it says this, A gift opens the way and ushers the giver into the presence of the great. Did you see that? A gift opens the way, or it opens the door, it will. One version says, A gift will bring you into the presence of kings. I have since discovered that one of the markers that a believer is becoming more established in grace is when generous gifts no longer make them feel awkward whether they are the giver or they are the recipient. I'm telling you right now, there is no gift that you could give me. I'm not looking for any gifts necessarily, but there is no gift that you could give me that would make me feel awkward. I'd appreciate anything you do for me or anybody in my family, but you can't give me a gift that would make me feel awkward. And that's because I'm establishing grace. And that's the reason. I don't have to feel awkward. I've already received his greatest gift. 
I know what it feels like to receive gifts. I know what it feels like to, for him to open his treasure house and pour out gifts. I love his gifts, but I love him more. I love his presence even more. Generous is an adjective, and it describes one of the unlimited characteristics or one of the unlimited attributes of God. Here's what generous means. It's defined as giving or giving freely and unstingily. Generous stresses the warm-hearted readiness to give. Thoughtfulness and timing are more important, really, than the size of the gift. What I'm saying is the, the gift isn't what's so important. It's the heart behind it, the thoughtfulness of the heart. It's the timing of it. I've never seen a, a person spend more time looking for a, a simple card, a birthday card, whatever it may be, than my wife when she goes to the store because it has to be the right card. It has to be a card that communicates her thoughts. It's got to be as close. And I know it's a challenge at times. Or to pick out a gift. She spends so much time putting thoughtfulness into the gift. And whether that person appreciates it or not or it's a duplicate of something they've already got, that doesn't matter. She listens to the Lord and she does what the Lord says, but there is thoughtfulness behind what she does. In other words, what I was just saying there is a person can oversupply a need and technically still not be considered generous. True generosity begins in the heart. That's where it starts. And that's where it ends. It is a heart issue. It's not a hand thing. We don't give from the hand. We give from the heart. I know the visual is, here's your gift. You're seeing the hand give it. But the heart behind it is what's important. It is. Romans 8.32 He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also, look at those words, freely give us all things. Freely give us all things. Generously give us all things. Amen. I am winding down here. But I don't know of a biblical narrative that better showcases generosity than the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 20. It's called the workers of the vineyard. And here it is. Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 through 15. And these will be my closing scriptures. Jesus is talking. And if Jesus is talking, we've got to ask a couple of questions. Who's he talking to? And what does he want us to see? Jesus didn't just ramble he wanted us to see something or in most cases someone he's always about his father so he's wanting us to see his father in this he begins the story jesus says for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner that's god who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. And then he went out about five in the afternoon and found others still standing around doing nothing. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers 
and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and then going on to the first. Absolute brilliance. If you're going to want to make a point, this is brilliant. The workers who were hired about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, now granted, they have only worked for one hour, and he calls them to come and get paid first. He said they came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. That's exactly what they agreed upon at 5 o'clock in the morning. Yes, they have worked. Back-breaking, grape-picking, 12-hour days, but they agreed for a denarius. And that's what their pay is going to be. And they were fine with that until they saw the guys that only worked for one hour get what they had to work 12 hours for. Friends, I want to tell you something. There's a truth in that all by itself that will just set you free if you just quit being mindful how God's blessing other people. Don't be jealous of what God's doing. So when they received the denarius, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. You notice he calls them friend. This is a picture of the body of Christ. And you're going to find people that want to come into the body of Christ. And all they think about is, God, I'll do this if you do this for me. God, we've got to have some sort of agreement. They're not relying upon grace. They're relying upon an agreement. That's what the first workers all did. We agree to this. He said, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Now look at this last verse, verse 15. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? What are the points of that narrative? What did Jesus want us to see through that snapshot in time? First of all, I believe that Jesus wanted us to see the currency of heaven even before we go there. The currency of heaven is generous grace. I believe he also wanted us to hear what the heart of the vineyard owner, what the heart of his father sounded like even before we hear his majestic voice at death. His voice is generous grace. Are we envious of others because they seem more gifted than ourselves? I can tell you how to get healed from that. Mow their lawn. Purpose in your heart to see Jesus and then to help someone else see over the crowd of religion. Carry a person's bags, not one mile, but two miles. Welcome that rival friend over to your home 
and wash their feet on the way in. Give them a gift that is so generous that it will stretch you beyond your feelings. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Whether we find ourselves in a rose garden, in the olive garden, or a memorial garden, we must remember that our daddy has freely given us a generous supply of grace so that we can be good to people that are not exactly like us. Grace that compels us to reach out to others with hearts of compassion as we take the afflicted, we embrace the betrayed, we comfort the disappointed. By the hand, we take them and lead them out of their Garden of Gethsemane, a place of suffering. God's generous heart empowers us to go beyond our religious feelings. Generous grace teaches us that it's okay to sit with the tax collectors as we watch the sunrise breach the horizon and shine with all of its beauty on the evil and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous. Religion tells us to separate ourselves from sinners and tax collectors, but that is not what Jesus modeled. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Let me ask you a question. Why do we model Jesus? Two reasons. Because the great I am lives on the inside of us and because I am generous. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Daddy, I want to just praise you and thank you for your goodness and grace. I want to thank you as the message of grace, the message of your unconditional love establishes us in grace. We don't find ourselves in sycamore fig trees anymore trying to hide behind self-righteousness. No, we come down. And we don't feel awkward about allowing you to come into our house. We don't feel like we have to go and pick things up and get the house arranged just perfectly before you come in. You're not interested in that, Daddy. What you're interested in is changing us from the inside out, not from the outside in. So I want to thank you, Father, that our hearts today are enlarged to believe for the goodness of God to show up in the land of living. I want to thank you, Father, that our hearts are being molded to be not only good givers, but good receivers. And Daddy, I pray that this word challenges us to consider those that we may have overlooked, like a Zacchaeus male or female, those that we have overlooked, those that we have jockeyed to get in front of. Daddy, help us to reach out to those people and wash their feet. Help us to reach out to those people and mow their grass, Daddy. We thank you, Father, for the goodness of God. It is the goodness of God, the Bible says, that causes man to repent, to change his mind, to see you differently. I want to thank you, Father, that you're peeling back that religious onion and with it come tears tears of joy tears of thanksgiving daddy we have been given so much by you we have been forgiven so much 
because of what Jesus did on the cross. And let that be our motif everywhere we go, that we would look at the people, the ones that we had a hard time calling them clean, the ones that we had a hard time looking at and referring to them as pure and innocent, helping us to see them through the lens of grace. That is our heart today, Daddy. Why do we want to do this? Because you live on the inside of us and because I am generous. In Jesus' name, amen.